Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Wednesday, the 2nd of September. In today's podcast, you will hear Professor Gary Groman explain in more detail how the various COVID-19 vaccines actually work. The latest global and local COVID-19 statistics will follow the interview. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. In today's podcast, I will be speaking with Professor Gary Groman. Uh, Gary, would you tell us a bit about yourself? Hello again, and I, I trust all your listeners are well. Um, yes, uh, I've been working uh, recently for the World Health Organization in the area of vaccines, and I did a lot of work with developing country vaccine manufacturers. And prior to that, I spent 17 or so years with the TGA in the regulation of vaccines and other biologicals. Now, Gary, can you tell us which vaccines are currently leading the race as they go into phase three and four trials? Right, well, there are quite a few actually. There are some 40 vaccines that are now moving into the phase two, three trials. Mm -hmm. But I think the ones that are leading in terms of a timeline Mm -hmm. would would be the Moderna vaccine in the US, uh, the Oxford vaccine, as it's known, um, the um, Novartis, vaccine, I think these these three uh, would be so-called leading the race. We know about the Oxford vaccine and its um, relationship with AstraZeneca recently in the news. We also know about the UQ protein-based vaccine okay. combination with CSL, and the UQ vaccine would also be up there. And when we say race or timeline, basically most of these vaccines will have results by the end of the year or into early next year. And okay. one would production to occur in the middle of next year if if all goes well. It'll take a bit of time. Now, as we say, uh, by middle of next year, manufacturing begins. It's important for GPs to start getting our heads around exactly how these vaccines work because, you know, they're pretty much all first of a kind or unique. So let's start with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. I understand it uses a chimpanzee adenovirus as a Trojan horse, but what does it all mean? How how does this Trojan horse concept really work? Well, the Oxford uh, vaccine is using an adenovirus vector, so it's it's what we call a viral vectored vaccine. It's a non-replicating vector, so the vector itself doesn't replicate. It is an adenovirus, and it's derived from a chimpanzee in this case. Other viral vector vaccines use different viruses or adenoviruses. But in the case of the Oxford, the chimpanzee adenovirus contains uh, the, spo- the coronavirus spike protein gene. So when 
it goes into the cell and uncoats itself, then the uh, gene produces spike protein uh, just through normal replication in itself or normal uh, transcription translation mechanisms. And so uh, as the S spike protein is produced in the cell, then you get an immune response. And as your listeners will know, both arms of the immune response would need to be activated. Uh, so it's not only an antibody response, but you also need the appropriate uh, T cell, cytotoxic T cell responses as well. So you need both arms to um, be, be activated for the vaccine to be reasonably successful. Now, Gary, you say that the adenovirus is non-replicating. I suspect it's because of some form of genetic engineering. Uh, are we definitely assured that every one of the viruses don't replicate? Look, it's, it's a problem that really um, makes regulators think. This kind of vaccine has never been registered before, let alone mm-hmm. to humans or <coughs> experimented with. So it's really hard to know what the safety side effects are long-term. I mean, the short-term ones can be elucidated in the phase two, three clinical trials. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But the long-term events are still an unknown and uh, without causing any fear or doubt, but, but nevertheless, uh, these antibody responses and uh, long-term and the safety profile long-term is entirely unknown. So okay. we'll have to really wait for five to six years before we get any data like that at all on on these kinds of vaccines. But they will go through the gene regulator here in Australia as well, and they will look at the genetic engineering of it. Mm -hmm. I think anybody taking the vaccine can be guaranteed that all measures have been taken to ensure its safety from a manufacturing point of view Mm -hmm. and from a scientific point of view on the published data. If it does replicate, it's just like inducing another zoonotic infection, isn't it? Well, if it replicated, yes, which is why they carefully genetically engineer it so it can't replicate. But it it does deliver its uh, genetic package, and that genetic package contains a corona spike gene that produces a protein that then produces an immune response. So from that point of view, it would appear to be quite safe these viral vector vaccines. But as I said, they've never been licensed. In fact, in the past, they've never even been successful. Uh, So interestingly, in hamsters, they've been incredibly successful in experiments and now in phase uh, two clinical trials, Mm -hmm. there's been some immunogenicity shown and also uh, decent safety profiles. So now they're in phase three and we just have to await the results because phase three is the real test because the controls and the test group taking the vaccine will be in a COVID environment. So then um, we'll we'll see how well the vaccine protects and we'll also see if any safety issues that do arise are significantly Mm -hmm. more than in the controls. In the phase two study, I might add, there were quite a, uh, something like 50% of people did report side effects. Mm -hmm. And some of those weren't just simply a sore arm. Some people did describe fever and fatigue, malaise. Uh, some described diarrhea. So uh, that will that will be teased out much better in a large-scale phase three clinical trial, which might have between 10 and 15,000 people. Some of them are larger. What about the RNA and DNA vaccines? So you really need to be able to dispel the thought that um, the SARS-CoV-2 DNA or RNA 
does not and cannot mix with ours. How does it work and is it that safe? Right, so it is an unusual platform, it is unique, the nucleic acid-based vaccines, and as you say, there are two types. If we look at the DNA one first, um, there are at least 20 teams looking at using these nucleic acid vaccines, whether they're DNA or RNA, and the idea is uh, that a protein of the coronavirus will be produced by the nucleic acid to prompt mm -hmm. an immune response. Mm -hmm. Now, for DNA vaccines, the nucleic acid is actually inserted into human cells, into the recipient cells, which then churn out copies of the virus protein. So that can only be done using a method called electroporation. Um, so, um, and that is done with an electroporation gun on the vaccine. So the vaccine is given, then you need electroporation. It's the electroporation that creates pores in the cell membrane to increase the uptake of the DNA into the cell. So uh, that's the method for DNA vaccine. The concern is that they're very easy to develop and easy to grow and so on, but they're unproven. No licensed DNA vaccine has been made using this technology, as far as I know, not even in animals, And although that's something I should check. And there is concern in the back of the mind about the integration of the DNA into the host DNA and what mm. the long-term effect of that might be. Right. That is an entirely unknown question. I think these are further away in terms of registration than RNA vaccines, which work quite differently. So with the RNA vaccine, RNA is made um, mm -hmm. and it's encased in a lipid coat so it can enter the cells. Right. So on injection, the lipid coat is basically taken in by the cell. Uh, the RN messenger RNA is exposed. It acts as messenger RNA mm -hmm. and produces a viral protein. That viral protein is produced in relative abundance, one hopes, and then there's the appropriate immune response. So that's the hope. And so far, so good. Now, the difficulty with the RNA vaccines, there's no fear of it entering into the cellular uh, genetic uh, material or anything like that, but there is a concern about enough immunogenicity. Uh, how much RNA do you need to put in? How much protein will it produce? So will it need some kind of adjuvant? Will it need multiple doses? Will it need a booster dose? All these questions are being answered as we speak through the phase two and phase two, three combined clinical trials. Uh, so. I don't think there's much of a safety concern with an RNA vaccine, mm -hmm. but there is a little bit of concern about the actual immune response, how strong it will be, how quickly mm -hmm. it will wane, and so on. Uh, but in terms of safety, I think there's less concern, at right. least in the regulatory mind and scientific mind. They're much easier to produce. They're much easier to manufacture. Uh, they can be manufactured uh, in billions of doses fairly quickly. I've mm -hmm. that on about a year, but, I mean, it can be done pretty quickly, and then mm. if it's uh, shown to be safe and reasonably efficacious, then I imagine uh, they'll be licensed and used. I'm already feeling better about the RNA. Let's go back <laughs> to the DNA, because you yeah. said it is a possibility that a small amount of DNA of the um, SARS-CoV-2 may just hang in there with our own DNA for a very long, long time. Yeah. And, and who knows if it goes you know, it's transgenerational, it might actually become part of our human genome. Look, that's, uh, <laughs> that's the uh, elephant in the room when it comes to <laughs> vaccines. So, and nobody has an answer to this. So 
you know, the DNA vaccine is made. It contains a coronavirus spike gene. It's injected. Yeah. Uh, then electroporation, so it gets into the nucleus. Yeah. And then in the nucleus, the messenger RNA is produced from it, uh, which is translated into viral proteins. Mm -hmm. uh, and that elicits an immune response. So it's really a two or three step process into the nucleus of the cell, whereas the messenger RNA gets into the cytoplasm of the cell. Mm. Uh, mm. So, I, you know, I, I think there are reasonable concerns. There's always been cause for concern of DNA vaccine. All the animal mm. studies have shown they are, uh, certainly work and so on and so forth. But everybody's got this niggling question, the yeah. elephant in the room, well, what about integration to host DNA? And I'm afraid yeah. I can't answer that. There's no yeah. evidence or scientific papers out there to tell us it's absolutely safe. Uh, so we just don't know. We're going to yeah. have to um, await more studies in animals and humans eventually. But there are a number of DNA vaccines um, that are being produced. Um, Innovio, for one, uh, is, is one that is going into phase three clinical trials. And I imagine, um, you know, we all wait, await the results of that one. Uh, so we'll, we'll just have to see what uh, happens with the DNA. Because I'm actually thinking in my own head here, Gary, is that, you know, recently we heard an uproar, an ethical uproar about the Oxford Seneca using fetal cells. Here yeah. I am thinking that, um, you know, at some stage it's also that very, very, very small chance that human DNA would be irreversibly change in some way uh, does raise this kind of ethical thought, doesn't it? Well, it does. <laughs> and these are the things uh, that patients and doctors do need to know about, I agree, and we'll need to think about. And, and the AstraZeneca one is in human embryonic kidney 293 cells, which is a well-known cell line that's been around for a while, since the 90s, and is a totally transformed cell, so it's become immortal. You know, <laughs> like a lot of these cells in the early days, it was uh, these cells were uh, taken really for diagnostic purposes to start with and mm. the whole area of cell culture was experimental back then in itself back in the 50s or so uh, and they were used as a platform to grow viruses in the lab for diagnostic and research mm. purposes later on because of their success in being immortal and easy to grow and manufacture they some of them um, were also used to gr um, grow virus for vaccine purposes so Right. Um, measles and rubella and uh, COVID, this uh, particular COVID-19 and uh, hepatitis A vaccines, for example, one rabies vaccine as well, are all grown in human fecal uh, tissue, mm -hmm. albeit in uh, transformed cells. That's uh, true. So far, you've made me feel a bit better about the RNA vaccines. Tell me about the UQ molecular clamp. Okay, so the UQ molecular uh, clamp vaccine is really a protein-based vaccine. So what it does is that uh, the scientists start with COVID-19 genetic sequence, which is easily available, and they create a new DNA sequence using the part that's going to code for the spike protein, and they call that a molecular clamp technology. Mm -hmm. uh, having made this new piece of DNA, they put it into mammalian cells, not human cells, but into mammalian cells in cell culture, and as mm -hmm. the mammalian cells grow, they produce liters of this protein right. in large bioreactors. Then that is purified, uh, and the clamp protein, as it's called, um, is isolated, uh, and then that can be 
um, put into human beings, either with or without adjuvant, being okay. a, um, a recombinant protein, it probably will net an adjuvant. CSL are proposing, as far as I know, the use of MF59, or uh, they've offered that, uh, but other adjuvants could also be, be looked at. We know about MF59 that it's very safe and you know mm-hmm. has a very acceptable safety profile. Uh, and then the protein, together with the adjuvant, would stimulate the body's immune response and probably the use of adjuvant would also give us some dose sparing. We could use mm-hmm. lower amounts of protein. So this is a very classical way in some ways to produce a vaccine, a modern classical way. I mean, the most classical ones um, that your listeners will be familiar with is using either inactivated virus mm-hmm. uh, or, or weakened virus, uh, weakened live attenuated virus, which is sort of the two traditional ways in which vaccines are made, and some manufacturers and researchers have approached coronavirus vaccines in that way. Uh, But this is what I would call a very fancy protein-based vaccine. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it should be quite safe, and with the addition of a good adjuvant, it should be quite uh, immunogenic. And Mm -hmm. and so we, again, have to wait for the phase three to come out. So they're now in phase two, I believe, and um, or maybe a combined phase two, three. So we'll see how they... Uh, get on by the end of the year. Well, Gary, so far you've convinced me that the RNA, if it does work and produce enough uh, of the antibodies and the um, molecular clamp vaccine, uh, there's something a little bit more, uh, if you like, favorable in my, in my eyes. Yeah, well, any protein-based vaccine uh, should be very, very safe. It's just a next yeah. step on from using um, uh, either an attenuated virus or a kill virus vaccine that we're used to. That was sort of the old uh, traditional approaches. And now being able to use things, uh, genetic sequence, you don't need the virus at all. You just get the piece of sequence that relates to the protein of interest. You can grow that in mammalian cells and cell culture, purify it, use it as a vaccine with an adjuvant. So yeah. it's very straightforward. It's also mm-hmm. been done with influenza. It's been done with a number of other viruses. Yep. Well, all slightly different approaches, but um, that's that's the basic train that one needs to make a vaccine of this type. And it's called a recombinant vaccine because of the recombining of uh, nucleic acid right in the beginning uh, to make a uh, strand of DNA that codes with or codes for uh, the protein of interest. In this case, the spike protein, which they call clamped. I, I think that vaccine is very straightforward and. I yep. wouldn't expect any issues from a safety point of view anyway. So let's just say that end of next year or middle of next year, a vaccine is shown to be effective, however you define it, and safe, however you define that. And we start to undergo a campaign of mass immunization in Australia. Two-thirds of the way through, nine months down the track, somebody else comes up with a more effective and safer vaccine, what do we do then? Well, once you've started on a vaccine, that's fine. You can always switch uh, to another one that um, is supposedly more safer and efficacious. It won't do any harm to switch Mm -hmm. and probably won't do any harm to remain as long as the safety profile is good and is reasonably efficacious. Depends on the vaccine, but I think for messenger RNA and the um, recombinant protein vaccines that we've discussed so far, I don't see any major safety issues, but I do 
think that immunogenicity might be an issue and so adjuvants need to be on the horizon and mm. we don't know how long the antibody response will last, when it will remain. Uh, remain. Uh, we, we don't know how immunosenescence uh, in all mm. people is going to affect these vaccines. We probably will need boosters every year. Mm. We, um, we don't know if the clade that we make the S protein to in Australia or the US is going to be efficacious against clades in India or Asia. Uh, there's many unknown questions that still need to be elucidated and we also don't know the effect of mutation as the years go by, how that will affect the vaccine. If it affects it like it does influenza, then we'll probably need different strains or right. updated strains on an annual basis. And that all, all that remains to be elucidated. Who will receive the vaccine first when it arrives or is released in Australia? Well, as far as I know, the government has not provided a policy on this yet, but one would have thought the frontline healthcare workers, including allied healthcare workers and teachers, uh, would be the people who should really first receive the vaccine. Uh, after that, I would have thought the major risk groups, which would include indigenous people as well, uh, the major risk groups obviously being people over the age of 70 or those with underlying medical conditions. And then I would have thought travellers because people are travelling around Australia or in particular overseas, then it would make sense to have the vaccine uh, in travellers. And also, it's, there's some precedent to this. Uh, one could also ask that travellers show certification or evidence uh, for vaccination before coming into Australia. Uh, and this used to be done in various areas that might have been affected by smallpox or West Nile virus. Uh, you would have to show your vaccination uh, certificates in the past, many years ago now. So I think travellers would be another group to be targeted. And then various institutions or close community settings, and these might be various homes or uh, homes for the mentally ill or jails boarding schools, things like that, whether it closed community settings, possibly religious groups as well. And then after that, the general public. So that's just a personal view as to where I think um, the vaccine should go first. And it will be rolled out over a number of months and, and uh, priority groups will have to be set by government. For whom might the vaccine be completely contraindicated? As the vaccine uh, is made in cell cultures, depending on whether it's viral vectored or, or a protein-based vaccine, be made in some kind of cell culture, there shouldn't really be any ad serious adverse reactions or allergies from these kinds of vaccines, as most of the ingredients via the antigen would have been removed. For the mRNA vaccine, uh, this is simply nucleic acid surrounded by a lipid coat. So again, it's unlikely there would be extreme adverse reactions. So no egg material is involved, for example, so nobody should have an allergy there. Uh, and I can't really think of any particular group that would be excluded on medical grounds unless they have some kind of immunological issue. It's still unknown whether people with immunological deficiencies or chronic viral infections can actually take the vaccine. That's yet to be tested. But apart from that, I don't think there are any groups that would be particularly excluded. So would there be any theoretical advantage in taking a particular platform or combining vaccines? Well, the answer to that is still unknown. The various platforms available, which are 
live and kill vaccines, the viral vector vaccines, the protein-based vaccines, and the the nucleic acid-based vaccines all have various advantages and disadvantages. But until all the phase three trials come out, we really won't know which one will be more effective or if one will be more effective than another. I'm afraid we'll have to wait for the end of the year. Otherwise, it's merely speculation. But the front runners at the moment, which are the mRNA uh, and the protein expression-based vaccines, uh, seem to be eliciting a reasonable immune response. Again, effectiveness is something that will come out in the phase three clinical trial. So we'll have to wait to the end of the year. With regard to using two platforms at the same time as a prime boost, this is actually being thought of and is being done by a group in Melbourne and is under patent issues at, at the moment or patent considerations. So I can't uh, talk too much about that except to say that the idea of using uh, protein-based, say, in another platform like mRNA has been thought about and should give a very good immune response in theory. And again, that remains to be seen, but it's hoped that that particular strategy will go into phase one clinical trials shortly. This is a very crazy virus, Gary. <laughs> it's not straightforward at all. Uh, no. uh, we've never really dealt with the coronavirus before. I mean, there's even now talk of it causing chronic infections in some people, which could be very difficult to manage. We know about super spreaders. We know it's high rate of asymptomatic cases. We know it's highly infectious. Uh, there's uh, many things to still be teased out about about this virus. But the right. nature of coronaviruses is normally an acute virus infection. Uh, but this one is obviously causing severe damage in the lung and mm. uh, and, and hence uh, all the other issues that go uh, with that. Did you just say something that just freaked me out? Did you just say that it can cause a chronic infection? Yes, there were some reports just this week that uh, some patients are reporting chronic infections. In other words, malaise and fatigue and muscle aches and pains and so on are continuing uh, seemingly for weeks, if not months. Now, these reports are only small in number so far, but there seems to be a growing number, unfortunately. So we need to keep an eye on that. And that's another good reason to have the vaccine is to stop okay. people of any age uh, getting chronic infection. Most of the ones reported on so far are between 20 and 50. So uh, that that needs to be looked at uh, yep. in, in due course, or people need to be aware of that and then treat symptoms as, as they can. So let me get it right. It's not, say, a chronic fatigue touch syndrome that is, if you like, consequent upon getting COVID-19, but these people might actually be TCR positive. That's right. And wow. It, 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 yes, uh, it may end up being a herpes-like infection, which can be latent or chronic, or a CMV infection, which uh, is chronic. We just need to see uh, uh, what's happening there. And again, the research hasn't been done yet, but there are reports I noticed in the last week or two People have suggested this before, but now there's actual data and scientific studies coming out in various places showing that some people have reported uh, these chronic infections. And those that have recovered have reported symptoms uh, with long-term sequelae. So, you know, there's a lot more to be found out about this virus and, and whether these particular patients have got other issues or not, all that I don't know at the moment. Mm. But, um, uh, there's a, a little way to go before we fully mm. understand the profile of this virus and what it can do uh, symptomatically and asymptomatically. But it's nice to know that 
Australian scientists are up there with the best and we're thinking differently and uh, thinking out of the box to use a, a cliche but um, you know people are starting to think about different ways to approach this virus in the same way it's approached us in a very unique way so it will require some um, really careful thought mm. and slow and good research mm. and good science to really overcome it and you know scientists aren't worried about time they just want quality data um, mm. and safe outcomes and that's what we need for a vaccine because, as we all know, we give them to healthy people. So we have to be incredibly careful. Well, Gary, I just think you've taught me a lot of stuff here and it's been really helpful. I'm sure as the vaccine gets closer, we might have more questions. Uh, but thank you for clarifying quite a lot of this stuff for me. I now feel quite confident, if you like, with two of the vaccines we spoke about, and I'm delighted that you are and others are looking at combinations of uh, vaccines. We might be a small country, Gary, but you guys are very clever. Well, the Australian contribution to this, I think, has been enormous, and congratulations to all the people out there. Uh, and there are many of them in many institutions, but that's typical of Australian science. I mean, the Australian science, particularly in virology and immunology, you know, is, is up there with the best in the world. There's no question about that. I mean, I even though I'm semi-retired now, I, I, you know, I have tremendous confidence in uh, those uh, research teams around Australia to produce a safe, efficacious vaccine in due course. But we won't really know anything until we get the phase three data. And I really mm. couldn't emphasize that enough. A lot can happen between phase two and phase three. And mm. we won't really know until we see a large-scale definitive phase three trial uncoded and look at the data and and see uh, what we glean from that in terms of efficacy and safety. Remembering the safety will be short term and mm. the efficacy will most likely uh, be, it certainly won't be 100%, but if it's 50%, then all the vaccine will probably get used. But if it's under 50%, it will be an interesting question. And no vaccine is 100% efficacious, although some are very close. But I, you know, I worry about the efficacy side of it at the end of the day and, and how low that will be. Influenza is used, of course, with an efficacy of about 50%. Other vaccines are 60 or 70%. But we'll, we'll just have to see how this one is, and then authorities will have to decide whether to use it or not. Well, I'm sure by that time we'll be speaking again because... Um various vaccines come to the end of phase three, we'll be very interested to know which ones might get the tick. By the end of the year, I think okay. that data will be unveiled and early next year, then decisions, I imagine, should be made by either manufacturers or regulators or both. And then the governments will have to make decisions about which ones to offer to the public. Okay, Gary, look, thank you so much for uh, taking us through what's a very difficult topic, uh, but very clearly too. Thank you very much. You're, you're welcome. And now from the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre, we find that the global COVID-19 cases has exceeded 25.6 million. The USA has recorded another grim milestone with more than 6 million cases. Brazil had more than 3.9 million, India nearly 3.7 million, Russia nearly 997,000, Peru has sadly jumped up a spot with more than 652,000 cases and South Africa had more than 628,000 cases. Global COVID-19 deaths is recorded at 
853,290. The USA recorded nearly 184,600. Brazil, more than 121,000. India has jumped up a spot in this tragic list with more than 65,200 deaths and Mexico with more than 64,400. Australia has reported to date 25,737 cases of confirmed COVID-19 and 665 people have died from it. In the past day, Victoria recorded 90 new cases of COVID-19 and six deaths. 401 patients are still in hospital, 13 are in ICU and seven are being ventilated. These numbers are falling each passing day and we should be very thankful for that. New South Wales has reported 17 new cases. 15 are locally acquired for a known source. One is a returned traveller in hotel quarantine and there is one case of locally acquired transmission with no known source. Queensland has reported two new cases of COVID-19 in the past day. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.